Hello, welcome to Lightning Forms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lambda Forms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today, I am joined by guitarist, composer, and teacher Dave Remnick. Remnick is one-third of the band Paper Mice, a math rock group that takes lyrical inspiration from absurd but real stories pulled straight from the headlines of the news. Last Friday, Paper Mice released 1-800-Mondays, their first full-length in eight years, which expanded their sound into densely arranged chamber pop and art song. As it so happens, Remnick was also my entry-level music theory teacher at Columbia College in Chicago, so I was delighted to catch up with him and talk about his new record, how his work has changed the way he consumes news, and how teaching music theory has changed since I took his class. But before we get to the interview, I'd like to mention that I put out an album recently called You Can't Do This Alone. It's a remix album that features a wide range of electronic and experimental reinterpretations of songs from my previous album, Sisyphean. You can grab the album now in my Bandcamp, which I've included in the show notes. Now, on to my interview with Dave. And so how have you been? What have you been up to since that show, Ventures? So I'm guessing if I saw you... In 2015, it was probably early in the year. My, my son was born in April of that year. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of been the, you know, the big becoming a parent has been like the, the big event for, you know, the past, I guess, five years, six years, he's six now. So, you know, I, I, I was teaching, I had been, I guess, I don't, yeah, I had been teaching at Columbia for a while and I stopped that to go back to school and get a doctorate in composing. Mm-hmm. And then um, my son was born and I was like, oh crap, I got to finish this. So I wrote my dissertation while being a stay-at-home dad. Like I would like be with my kid all day, and then at night I would write my dissertation. And so I finished that. I, I you know, uh, graduated and have just been composing a lot since then. Kind of trying to, you know, I did most of my my previous studies in in saxophone and music theory, so I was trying to start a career as a composer. So I've been kind of focusing on that um, and. You know, uh, doing some teaching. Uh, I stopped teaching for a while to focus on my kid, um, mm-hmm. and then recently, last year, took up took up some teaching at DePaul. And so I'm just doing some theory teaching, doing some writing, doing some private teaching on the side, and just uh, we just moved a little while ago, and just trying to stay safe with my family. <laughs> you know. Yeah. What? Where did you move to? Still in the Chicago area, or? Yeah, we're we're in Oak Park now. Uh huh. We couldn't, we couldn't ride out the rest of the quarantine without a backyard. We are just yeah. like this, you know, he's getting too big. It's like we were in a third floor condo and we're just like, we, we, we can't do this anymore. We got to get out of here. So we're like, let's, let's do it. We've been thinking about it for a little while and, and very, you know, moving during the pandemic was hard, but it was definitely, I think, a smart move to, to, mm-hmm. to, to get out. <laughs> yeah. What has Chicago been like in your experience? I feel like I'm, because I've been sort of cooped up in the New York side of things, it's like hard for me to really tell what life is like anywhere else. So I'm just like curious about yeah. your impressions of lockdown and your experience. It's hard for me to say, cause you know, we locked down, I think harder than most, you know, because, because we have a kid and because, um, you know, we have some, some 
kind of family health conditions that we have to keep, you know, worry about that we're just like, we locked down pretty hard. So I don't really, I don't know much about, about what it was like for other people. You know, I think for, for us, it was, it was just like, like a, a pretty literal lockdown, you know, like we just, we leave the house, I left the house to walk my dogs, got food when we needed it. And that was about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to really comment on that. I feel, I feel a little, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm in a very lucky position that we could both work from home and that we could, you know, that we could lock down like that and stay safe, you know? But yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. What was it like in New York? Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I've, I feel like we've now ridden the full wave. Like a year ago, it was very eerie, certainly like being out on the streets. It was like, you know, there's that sort of period of time in New York around Christmas where the city really empties out, where like a lot of the city just kind of like leaves to go visit family across yeah. the country. And there, there's this kind of like nice small townness that some like sometimes kind of infiltrates into the experience of living in New York. And this was like a dark inversion of that where there was like no one on the streets. And if you were to see anyone on the streets, like both people would take like these wide looping pads around <laughs> each other at first. And then by, I guess around, yeah, mid May, there kind of got to be a sort of equilibrium or comfort with that status quo. And mm-hmm. then of course the summer happened, which is a whole other can of worms of you know all of the protests across the city and whatnot and this kind of like sudden explosion of of life back in the streets uh all the outdoor dining started up and now it's like it's incredibly weird because people are getting vaccinated people are having dinner inside of buildings again like walking around on the street and just being able to look into a window and see people inside without masks is kind of weird right like sends off alarm bells briefly but you have to like check yourself and be like oh right no this is sort of normal you know i mean i was at the supermarket today i had two masks on and rubber gloves like and this guy next to me like hit me with his cart and I turned around, he's got his mask pulled down completely. And I was just like, he was an old dude. So I was assuming he's vaccinated, but like, it's going to be like, like I'm going to, it's going to feel jarring to, I think for a while, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've sort of been avoiding like the big parks on nice days because the experience of like walking into prospect park and just seeing that many people all totally. at once is kind of like, pretty anxiety inducing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting like how it sort of feels like everyone is at a different stage of reemergence, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. you can be like vaccinated and by all accounts, like a low risk and still have this, all of these new internalized rules that you probably had like spent a year diligently training yourself in. And it's just going to (laughs) take another really long period of time to untrain yourself, to get back to, where where reality is to some extent, you know. Totally, totally. I you brought up a few different things that I'd like to sort of touch on because I don't know a ton about your musical life prior to when we met. I, I you know I knew that you were in a band. You told it told me yourself in our in the class that you were teaching, and I knew you as like a you know saxophonist because that was your your training. But how did you first start playing music at all? Whoa. <laughs> like as a kid you mean yeah yeah like how you, i guess you did start as a kid yeah no i started on the piano when i was like probably four or five maybe six mm-hmm. um and you know i my mom and my dad started me in piano lessons which which i loved 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, my grandmother was also a pianist, uh, an amateur pianist, but she was really, she really loved it. Um, and I remember we'd go to visit uh, and she would play, she would play Chopin or De Debussy at the piano and I would sit next to her and try to copy her. And it was like, I, you know, it was, it was definitely like, that was for me, I think a really formative inspiration was, was, was her, uh, her music. And now I have her piano in my house. I heard it after she passed. It's like, you know, I don't like to make too much of the things that I like quote own, you know, but like that mm -hmm. piano is, is, is a, a really important, uh, really important to me. But, you know, then I, I, play, I played um, throughout school, played clarinet and then I switched to saxophone and I didn't really think much of it until I, I heard Cecil Taylor on the radio when I was in uh, in high school. I was going, I think, probably to the doctor with my mom in the minivan, and I turned to uh, Columbia University Radio. I forget what it's called. K. I don't remember what the what the channel name was, but we turned it on, and it was just the middle of Cecil Taylor's "Air Above Mountains, Buildings Within," and I just was just like, "Oh, music is different. Like music can be other things." And I was, I like. I, I just, at that moment, I was like, I need to be a musician. Like I need to, you know, and I started listening to that channel all the day and finding about, about like uh, all sorts of amazing music, Henry Threadgill and Sun Ra, and just getting like really into uh, free jazz really. Um, mm -hmm. And then I decided to go to school for music, hoping that I would learn more about that kind of stuff and not really actually finding too much in the way of that in school, but, you know, exploring that with, with friends and playing a lot of improvised music. And, you know, I, around that time that I, I found Cecil Taylor, I started composing a little bit. And just kind of writing and i wrote all through college just for fun um played a lot of music by 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 friends by living composers commissioned a bunch of music um so it's always like really involved in um uh new music and you know and i started playing in bands in, in in college i had one band in high school which is not worthy of mentioning but i did play in a lot of in a lot of uh, uh you know bands through college and then uh in grad school started a, a band called the teeth which i think was kind of the a lot of the ideas that were, were Kind of that we're exploring in paper mice i think some of the germs of those ideas started in, the, in that group and actually adam the, our original basis in paper mice uh played bass in the teeth as well and we both moved uh -huh. to chicago around the same time we're like we've got to start a band together yeah and that was how paper mice started mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so when you mention that pre-cecil taylor moment like what kind of music did you listen to like what were your conceptions of music prior to that sort of door opening moment oh my gosh that's a really good question i mean i was you know, I knew, I knew, um, I really wasn't thinking for myself when it came to music until, until that point. I mean, I was really like, I would listen to what my parents played, you know, so the, uh, the, some, some stuff that I still like to this day, some stuff I probably would never listen to again. Like I remember my parents listened to Leonard Cohen. I was like, oh, that's great. Not appropriate for children, but that's really great music. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, pre, uh, you know, I think I was probably f finding out about like Frank Zappa around that point and uh, James Brown. I don't know. I, I mean, I wasn't really, uh, probably Bob Dylan I was into uh, at that point. You know what? Actually, I was listening to jam bands at that point also. Huh. Okay. Pretty sure I was. It was a brief period uh, when I was really into that stuff. Yeah, but then, you know, uh, I, I heard all that, that free jazz and it kind of just like opened my mind. And um, uh, I remember I went, I took, I was taking, I had re-enrolled in piano lessons. I had stopped taking piano lessons for years. I had a, a, a teacher that gave me nothing but Bach inventions and kind of ruined Bach for me for a long period of time um, and ruined the piano for me. I stopped playing the piano mm -hmm. and I decided to kind of re-enroll in piano lessons. And my piano teacher started teaching me a lot about music theory and a lot about composing. And so after I heard Cecil Taylor, 
I went to my lesson and I was like, tell me about this music. Like, you know, I had started talking to people about this stuff and people mentioned other names to me. They mentioned John Cage to me. They mentioned, I don't remember who else. Um, so I was like, tell me about these, about this music. And so he sits me down he had a record player and he pulls out this record, this uh, record by Ines Zanakis, uh, this piece called Metastasis. Mm-hmm. And he puts this piece on with the full intention of scaring me away from this kind of music. Right. He wanted to prove to me that this stuff was was garbage. He puts on the piece that he thinks will be the most offensive to my ears. And, and, and I don't know. If, do, do you know this piece? Um, I, my Zanakis is not particularly tight. I think I know Threnody and that's about it. But no, that's actually that's actually Penderecki. Oh, there you go. So point proven. I clearly don't know what I'm talking about here. It's OK. You don't you don't have to know anything about this piece. Metastasis. It like it it has like one of the most like I think striking openings of any piece of music I had heard at that point. It starts off with just like it's like one violin it's actually a whole bunch in unison and then they start to kind of just like glissando and, and all different directions so it turns from this one note into just this gigantic cl- tone cluster and it gets louder and louder and louder and then they stop you hear like a triangle and then they come back in even louder and then the it just becomes like the loudest thing you've ever heard and then the rest like the brass comes in and they're even louder and it's just like imagine that you know the um what is it? The THX opening at the movie theater. Right. Yeah. 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 It's that except it's imagine that if it was like on, on acid or something like that, like just really, really loud and dissonant. And it was the loudest, like scariest thing I ever heard. It like, I remember just like feeling like it like stapled me to the wall. And I was just like, this is incredible. And he, he, you know, it's, he stops it after the first section of the piece. And I was just like, you have to make me a copy of this. This is incredible. And he, like, I could tell, I could see his, it was just like his, his eyes. He was just like, oh, because he was hoping to just like turn me off to this stuff. And he did exactly the opposite, you know? Yeah, that was a really formative experience for me. Why do you think you responded so strongly to that, to, like, sonic palette? I think, you know, number one, I think it was because it was so visceral, so direct. Like, there was, you know, that there was, there, there was no rhythm in it. There was no you know, melody, there was no, like, everything, it was just, like, grit, it was just, like, pure aggression, I guess, is how I felt it, and mm-hmm. that was something that, that I had never experienced in, like, radio music, or, or like, pop, pop stuff that I was doing, I mean, I was from Long Island, I heard Billy Joel all the time, you know, it was, right. it, so, um, you know, hearing something like that, that's exactly why, you know, hearing Cecil Taylor, you know, I turned on the radio in the middle of one of the most just out there parts of the piece, where he's just kind of, like, all over the piano, just, like, scattered, and, you know, tone clusters everywhere and it was just like I did not realize that people could perform in such a visceral way and that the experience would be so visceral you know that it would be just like such an intense experience um and you know and the 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 harmonies I'd never heard like harmony like I never heard like such extreme dissonance and so for me it was like you know yes it was these these possibilities for expression that I had never encountered but it was also just like a whole entire um kind of sonic palette, timbral palette, a, a, a dynamic palette, things I had never heard before. And I was just like so intrigued by it. So were you also playing rock music at that time? Because there's this interesting thing with your musical approach, specifically with Paper Mice, and that it is like a rock band. But mm-hmm. I, I think, I feel like especially on this latest record, there's a degree to which it's clearly informed by what could be defined as more like academic music in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of interested in like, were those two parallel tracks for you or did you sort of jump from one to the other? It's, it's interesting actually, because I, I feel like 
I'm not sure, like, what the word, people use the word academic in so many different ways. I'm not sure, like, mm -hmm. uh, what, 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 you, what you particularly mean by that. Certainly. So I think that, hmm, how to phrase this in a, in a way, because I don't, I feel like it could be very condescending to mm -hmm. music like, you know, modern new music or mm -hmm. uh, free, free improvised jazz to kind of cloister it into the academy. I don't want to necessarily do that because I think to your point, to the example that you brought up, it is very like visually powerful and I don't want to discount that. But I, I guess like there's the world of like punk rock that typically is considered to exist outside of a kind of quote unquote serious academic world. And mm -hmm. there's music that to the layman's ears must only exist from some kind of like very intellectually I see okay gridded world and I'm not necessarily yeah. saying that that is the case I'm just sort of using those assumptions as a way to like ease the conversation forward yeah let me let me actually kind of step back and kind of deal with that that aspect because I, I feel sure. like for me um that that the distinction between these worlds was was always kind of you know, okay, like when I started composing and until probably about 2013 in my like concert music, you know, stuff that I would notate, I did feel like there was, I was making a distinction. I was writing, a, you know, one specific way when I was writing for other people to play. And then the music I was playing in bands was totally different from that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and the music I was improvising was totally different from that. And I felt these, these kind of threads as, as three separate streams. And I, and, and I felt like, like they all, they didn't feel that necessarily different to me, but I, I could tell I was kind of engaging a different part of my brain in a way. And I felt mm -hmm. like they were all related somehow. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm making sense, but, you know, I think a, a few years ago, I had this realization that like, they were kind of all the same in my mind. And I, well, they weren't the same. I, I was writing music that I felt like was the music I was supposed to write, was the music I wanted to be writing. Uh, in my, in my, in my compositions, not in like, like not in, in my band, the stuff I was playing with, with, with Paper Mice, I felt like exactly the music I wanted to be making. And I realized that was, I had been writing stuff that I didn't really feel that closely connected to. And so I started changing the way that I wrote my, my concert music to make it closer to the things that I cared about, right? I wasn't having very rhythmically interesting music or, you know, I, I love weird melodies and I wasn't writing any melodies in the music I, I had been writing. And so for me, the, 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 the distinction between those worlds kind of dissolved when my music made that distinction irrelevant in a, in sure, a way. Sure. Um, and so, I guess getting back to your question about the album, you know, I, I've kind of started feeling like like all these different aspects of 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 my music, my music, actually our band's musicianship, because we have, we we come from a lot of different, uh, we all have a lot of different influences, and that like there's no reason to keep anything separated, you know, like for instance, T uh, Taylor, our bassist, is is really into is really into metal, right, and and so he brought some of, like I don't know, you probably noticed in uh, the, the titular track in One Eight Hundred Mondays. Uh, when the band hits, it's there's like a definite metal tinge to to, to that to that riff that that comes mm -hmm. in, and that's pure ta pure Taylor right there. I guess the point I'm getting at is that a lot of those distinctions to me kind of feel less and less meaningful, and it feels like that 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 I kind of just kind of want to do whatever it is and not think about kind of where it fits in, if that makes sense. Certainly, yeah, but that also I guess does the job of answering the question. I guess I was loosely trying to ask was that at some point they were separated for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so w were you playing in, when you mentioned the, the kind of bands that you were playing and were those like rock bands in, in high school and in college, or was it more in the jazz and improv world? So in high school, um, I had just like a, 
like a rock band playing like Pearl Jam covers, you right. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was really into that in high school. Um, and I had a klezmer band in high school. Um, mm. And I also started, um, you know, doing a little bit of improvising with people. Um, when I got to college, I did a lot of improvisation. I had um, a, a bunch of kind of free jazz groups. Um, I started playing in just a couple of cover bands just kind of to get, you know, to get into it. I had a Misfits cover band. And I also started um, playing in some kind of noise, I guess maybe noise rock. I don't know how exactly what you call it. Like, like it was like a rock band, but I played saxophone and just squealed into my horn a lot in it. And then when I got to, to grad school, um, I was in a, just a punk band um, and I was playing guitar in the band. And I was like, I kind of had this idea for a band and I decided I was going to try singing and playing the guitar. And that's when I kind of started breaking away from kind of more genre specific stuff and started that band, the teeth that I mentioned to you before. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we moved to Chicago, before Paper Mice, but that's nothing. Yeah, nothing. Once Paper Mice started, I kind of stopped any other projects, any other bands. Right. Um, so I have, yeah, I haven't really done too much you know, outside of this since then. So what was your introduction to the more like what we could for the ease of conversation call like the punk world, the punk stream? Um, how did you get into that stuff? Yeah, uh, my, my roommates back when I was in, in uh, like a freshman and sophomore in college uh, were, were really into like uh, Misfits and the Ramones and they started getting into that stuff and we started kind of finding weirder punk music uh, and like more, uh, you know, I started getting really into Milk Banana. Mm -hmm. they, came to, they came to my school back, back when I was in uh, undergrad, got to stand front row and see them, just one of the best concerts of my life. Also got, I also got really into the residence uh, in, in late in high school. And that was a big influence for me. A, a friend of mine told me I, he thought I would like them and I bought an album and I didn't like it. And I bought another album and I didn't like it. And I kept buying albums by them until I found, figured out what my friend was talking about. And then, and then once I figured out what, because I bought, I bought um, do you know the residence much? Not really, no. Okay, because they, they had like a, their early stuff is really like, it's, it's this, the sounds are really kind of gritty and analog and, um, you know, in the, in the, in the eighties, they got really into MIDI, uh, which was a real turnoff for me when I was in high school. So I bought a couple albums by then that was like all MIDI sounds. I was like, I don't know what this, what, it, what my friend was talking about. Then I got their first album and I was like, Oh, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. And I was just like obsessed. And I got like, you know, probably 15 or 20 of their albums and got really into that. And that definitely took me toward the weird, um, sure. yeah. in music. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. Like, I guess there could be some sort of connective tissue between like very like physical and aggressive music, whether it be made by an orchestra or made by, you know, a punk band um, that could appeal to it along both lines. It's just kind of interesting because I, I don't think that's necessarily a connection like that most other people would make. So it's just kind of funny that you ended up in both of those camps. Why did, why Chicago when you decided to move? Oh, uh, I actually had a um, job teaching at Columbia. I had a, a, was a conversation with someone there and they, and they, you know, invited me to teach. And so I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna move to Chicago. And then, um, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't much more than that. And then, you know, I was lucky enough that to, to, you know, that, to, to find the music scene here and uh, the music scene here is incredible. But yeah, it was, it was just purely because I, I had found a, my first teaching job. That's yeah. So I was, sort of fishing around to see if maybe there was sort of a, a band reason to go there. Because I think that at least my impressions when I first moved to Chicago was that there is this kind of like very intense mathy, like complex punk music kind mm -hmm. of thing that happens 
specifically in the Midwest and then even more specifically in Chicago itself. And I was just kind of curious about why you thought that was the case or whether that kind of factored into any of your thinking at all. But yeah, no, I mean, it was, you know, we were, like I said, that, that band we were doing in Ann Arbor, which I guess is still the Midwest was, was a, a similar kind of vein of, of like, you know, mathy post-punk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, I guess, you know, the, the outside of the job, one of the big reasons was that um, Adam, our original bass player had moved Chicago and I wanted to, you know, keep playing music with him because mm-hmm. I love playing with him. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily because of, of the Chicago scene as much as playing with Adam. <laughs> And so how soon did Paper Mice form once you arrived in Chicago? So, yeah, you know, he and I tr- played around a little bit trying to find a, the right drummer. Uh, we played with a couple people and just kind of started trying to write a little bit. Um, but it wasn't until um, we met John that, um, you know, that things, I mean, obviously, you know, we tried to write, but it's hard to write a song without the everybody in place and knowing what, what you're like. And uh, I actually met John through a very strange coincidence where I was teaching at Columbia and John's roommate was also teaching at Columbia and kind of he passed the word on to John that, that he, someone he knew was looking for a band and I passed him in the hallway. And he's like, Hey, I think I might know someone who wants to play with you. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and I met John and I was just like, I've never heard anyone play the drums like this guy. This is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once we, you know, once we started, once we met with John, we were like, okay, let's just play. Let's just see how it goes. We didn't want to pressure him. We didn't want to scare him away. You know, we just kind of started playing a little bit and seeing what it was like. And once we started writing together and we got a song or two, we, we realize this is this is something we want to keep going with. So, do you got do you generally write as a group, or is it the sort of thing where someone will bring in mostly formed ideas that will get like adjusted by the band? It's usually a, a group pr- process. I mean, occasionally someone will come in uh, and say like, "I have this idea," but it's very rarely like a full formed idea. Usually, we'll just kind of sit around and play, and we'll come up with a couple of ideas, and then we'll go from there. What we'll kind of you know try to try to start working with it. Um, we have a actually uh, kind of a repository of, we, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with an idea and I'll say, like, quick, hit record on your phone and I'll, I'll hit record and we'll just get it down. And we have a repository of all of these things that we've recorded that we call the Riff Graveyard because um, like very few of them actually turned into songs. We just like kept recording ideas and ideas and ideas. And so every now and again, we'll dip into the Riff Graveyard and see if there's anything in there worth, worth actually working with. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting because when I listen to your music, often it's like, I will hear a guitar part by itself. And I, there's like a moment in my head where it's like, I have no idea where the pulse could be <laughs> for a lot of these songs. Like it could be any number of riffs before like the rest of the band comes in um, and like sort of clarifies what the actual musical idea is. So yeah. When you're coming up with these riffs in the for the riff graveyard, are you thinking of it in the? This is maybe like a very weirdly circular question, but do it. <laughs> are you thinking of it in the like form that it would potentially exist in with the full band, or are you just kind of generating ideas that then could potentially be interpreted a variety of ways? Okay, I, I, I yeah, let me. Uh... It's hard to explain. I think, I mean, usually what happens is we just start, I, I don't like the word jamming, but like, that's the word. We just kind of start jamming around, right? And someone will land on something and, and you know, like sometimes it'll be like, we'll have the beat going and we'll, know, we'll all know the context, but you know, like I'll be like, oh, hold on, John, stop playing. And you'll hear what I'm playing and you'll hear that it's backwards and it doesn't fit. And then, you know, like the beat, it doesn't seem like where it should be. And then we're like, oh, we should do something with that. I think it's pretty rare that we'll come up with something like, 
that would be like, this sounds weird, but this is where the beat is. Usually it's like, or, or like I'll start playing, John will start playing an idea and then I'll be like, I hear the beat here and Taylor will be like, I hear the beat here and we have to like figure out where we actually hear the beat and kind of come to an agreement. But it's, a, it's you know, it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty just sloppy process where we just kind of like start coming up with stuff and, and like we'll latch onto an idea and kind of work with that. Um, and then it's, you know, it's less trying to initially being like, let's come up with an idea that where the beat is weird and more just like seizing on it when it happens. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a bit more it, like literally experimental and trial and error and figuring out like what the best version of that idea would be through a sort of like collective consensus. If is that a good way of thinking of it? Or yeah, I mean, the, well, the collective consensus is definitely a part of the way we write. Like you mm-hmm. know, we, we, I, we ever since we started, we're just like, okay, we're going to write together. We want everybody to f- like. No one's going to have to play anything they don't like. No one's going to have to play anything they're not happy with. If, 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 if we come up with an idea and one of us doesn't like it, we either need to f- fix it or we need to come up with something new. Like we, like we want everybody to have, a, everyone has to have a hand in, 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 in writing it so that everyone feels ownership over it and everyone feels that they have something that they like playing. So we don't want people, we, you know, we don't want to be playing anything that we're unhappy with. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that is a, it's a time consuming process. Um, but I feel like it's, you know, for me, I feel like it's, it's worth it for a lot of reasons. Like I feel, I, you know, I, for what I was saying that, you know, everyone ultimately ends up happy with it, but also that the, I think, I think we all have, um, there are certain, and there are certain ways in which we all have different musical ideas. Like we, you know, I, I tend toward the kind of over micromanagey and John kind of just wants to, uh, you know, John likes to like lay on something and just, you know, stick it out for a while. I think Taylor is kind of more in that camp with John. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if it was just me, the band would, would I think would groove a lot less. So we'd have a lot less uh, like kind of real satisfying stuff. And it's, I think it's their influence that kind of balances my kind of micromanaging, you know, ADHD. And so, you know, I, I, for me, I, I really cherish the, that, that, and that, that process of, 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 you know, me not always getting my way and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, us kind of having to, 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 to find solutions that make everybody happy. I think it's ultimately better when, 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 you know, when it's not all me, you know, sure. Or when yeah. it's not all any one person. Yeah. What, how quickly did you settle on the lyrical angle? Because I feel like that is sort of the the elevator pitch for the band in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's a particular like subject matter and approach that y'all have to the the lyrics and the subjects of the songs. So how how did you settle on that? That was something that we started doing in the teak and in, in, in that in my old group that we had maybe like half of our song. We had like I guess probably half of our songs were started doing that. And, and I realized that this was something, at least for me, that, that I really loved, I really connected with, because you know, not only is it it's just an endless source of material, right? Because the news never stops and people never stop doing weird things. Um, but it, like it's an, so it's an endless source of material. It's an endless source of humor. And I also like, I, I don't like writing about music, about my own feelings or about myself or like from that kind of I perspective, like of me as a, you know, as Dave, but I like writing from the I perspective of me inhabiting these other people. I, I think of it more like a, like a filmmaker where, where it's like, you know, they don't come out and put themselves on the screen and tell you how they feel, but you get a, a picture of the, of the filmmaker through the characters and through the way they tell their stories. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a really appealing way to, to do this because I, I, you know, there's, there's so many love songs out there. There's so many songs about, you know, people talking about their feelings and, you know, I just, I, I don't feel like that's a domain where I have that much to contribute and that much to say, but it, you know, in this context of like writing about weird news events and, and, and writing funny lyrics and telling funny stories and trying to make unsympathetic people sympathetic, 
you know, I, 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 I just feel like it's, it's, uh, I don't, it's something that I feel like I, I, I don't get sick of. And I hope, mm-hmm. I, you know, hopefully people who listen don't get sick of it either. But it, for, for me, it's just like a, uh, just an, every song is something new. Every song is a, a, a new person doing something else different. And I, I just like, it's, I find it endlessly interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Personally. Yeah. A few different, I've got a few different angles that I want to tackle with this. Uh, were you ever a theater person, like acting or performing on stage prior to being into music at all? No, no, okay. I'm bad. I'm bad at that stuff. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I was in the pit orchestra in high school. Sometimes I turned pages for the pianist in the pit orchestra. I was never on the stage and I never should have been or never should be. But did you ever have like an interest in that form? Is that like something that you're, that you take in? Do you like watch a lot of like acting or theater or, you know, that sort of world? I mean, I, I like film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, it's never something I actually wanted to participate in. But yeah, I do. I do love film. But yeah. I was listening to the record yesterday and I, it, it there was a moment where I just sort of, not a particular moment in the record, but like in the moment of experiencing it, I was kind of like this, there's something sort of musical theater about, about it sometimes. Um, okay, well that, yes. Yeah. But, so not from, not from like, being in musical theater, but I do love musical theater. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. That's actually, you know, been, been a, you know, more and more of an influence uh, in the more recent material. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned like the sort of the aspect of making unsympathetic people sympathetic. And so I, I was curious about like how you attempt to inhabit the role, so to speak, of the people that you're writing about? I, I wouldn't say it's any one thing or any one way, um, but, you know, I think for, for I mean, let's just like, for example, sure. uh, the, the song Irregular Guy, the, the next to last track on the album, is about the, um, do, do you know the story of this one? No, I didn't Should get I tell- the, the full press release, so. So uh, um, there was um, uh, a high school, I think it was a high school in New Jersey, where they kept, I'm going to let you finish drinking so you don't spit it out because it's a really funny song. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, they, they, they kept finding like uh, human feces on the track uh, at the school uh, and in the field. And they were like, who, is, who, keeps, who keeps doing this? Like, what is happening? So they set up a camera and they found out it was the superintendent of a neighboring school district who was coming there and was pooping on their field every day. And they call him the pooperintendent. Um, and he was all over the news. And it was like this this big hilarious story and then he ended up i don't remember who he sued but he 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 sued somebody like the news outlets for publicizing his his picture and losing him his job and he lost that but like you know it was um it was i thought it was a really funny story and there was all these people like theorizing about like what why was he doing this and they were trying to make excuses about like you know because he was a runner and there's this runner's diarrhea thing and it's like no that's not what this was like he Nobody goes there and every day has the same runner's diarrhea and doesn't go home and, you know, doesn't realize that maybe they should poop before they go to the, to the track, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was like, this is, we have to make a song about this guy. But like, and so we just, kind of, I just kind of started writing the lyrics and just kind of started, you know, the, like the song starts with the line, what have I done? <laughs> and, and, and I just kind of started going with it. And the more I went and started writing lyrics and, you know, I'm sorry, the more lyrics I wrote, the more I, I kind of built a story around it, like a reasoning behind him, do it, that this was some form of like protest. He was trying to stick up for the students. And he was like, this was kind of his, you know, he sees himself as a hero. And, I, you know, usually I, I don't go on such a, such a 
not a tangent, but like, I don't go so far from the actual story and, mm-hmm. and, and like make up new things. But this one, I was just like, we're going to, we're going to go all the way. And, you know, you know, at the end of the song, he, he sees him, he talks about, he says, I'm not the, the hero we need, but I'm the hero we got, you know, and that they, yeah. Uh, you know, right. And he, and he's, he, he gets more and more agitated as the song goes on and more and more like, well, that's one of the only songs on the record where you go into what, like the, the vocal style that I feel like is more, similar to the older paper my stuff where it's more like screaming by the uh-huh. end is that right um yeah that's another like big change that i noticed on the record is you're much more of a like speak singing and straight up singing on this album compared to the previous ones so yeah you know on the first album i think it, I, I was a lot younger and i think i could do that a lot more but actually i think the, the, the you know I, I don't know how well you know the the you know all of the albums but uh you know, as we were on the, our second album, The Funny Papers, uh, the music was getting, I feel like, a lot more melodic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I, I personally, as a, as a, as a singer, was, was, was thinking a lot more, uh, you know, in terms of melodies and less, and less so in terms of just, like, screaming. And, and so, you know, this, this album, for, uh, you know, at least for me as, as, a, as a singer, kind of continued that direction. I, it was, I, I don't really do too much just, you know, outright yelling anymore you know, like I said, partially because I don't think I, 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 I can sustain that for very long, but also because I think my, my, my thinking has gotten as a, you know, as a, as a, someone writing vocal melodies has gotten a lot more melodic and I'm a lot more interested in, in kind of, you know, exploring weird melodies and, and kind of doing weird key changes and things like that. Like I'm, I'm thinking a lot more, I guess, pitchy, you know, for, uh, for mm-hmm. more in terms more, more in terms of pitch than I think I was at the beginning. Um, I also feel like that kind of opens up a greater degree of sympathy or empathy towards the character that is singing. It like allows you a bit more of like a, a like a text painting kind of element of like the, there's just like a, a broader emotional range to a character that is singing rather than one that is yelling throughout the entire song. You know what I mean? That is a really astute observation. Something I hadn't thought of. I, that's yeah. I think that's really that's really accurate. I, I agree entirely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think, you know, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of like writing a melody in general, like, you know, writing a song in general, if you want to make something sound sad, it's hard to do that while you're yelling, you mm-hmm. know, but like you, you, pick, you, you write your melody the right way. You can easily make that, you know, kind of tear at the heartstrings, you know, that's a really good point. And so when you're talking about like you empathizing or like building it for the, the regular guy song, like we can continue with that example. Do you want or do you want to allow the audience to also be able to empathize with this character that you're constructing? Like, how do you want this to come across to the audience? That's a good question. Um, I, I feel like it's different from song to song. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really, it's hard for me to say I necessarily want any one thing from, from, you know, personally from, from, uh, from, from the audience. And I, I'd be curious to, to talk to my bandmates and see how, how they feel about this, you know, for me, I think it's different from song to song. There, there's, you know, there's songs that we've written about attempted murderers where I don't really, I don't really feel too much sympathy for them. And I think there, you know, sometimes there's, there's like, there's a song on our first album called, um, called Cut and Run uh, about a doctor who was performing a, a testicular surgery on, on somebody and he made a mistake and cut the wrong thing and he got really upset and he just lopped off the guy's, <clears throat> you know, and like, I don't feel any sympathy for that, for that person at all. And I don't think that person should uh, you know, that song is actually sung from the perspective of the patient, not mm-hmm. from the perspective 
Tip of the Doctor, but that song is also, I think, partially allegorical. You know, that song is, uh, the, the use of the word, the term cut and run is not accidental. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because that was something we, we, uh, that the, the first President Bush used to talk about uh, being in Iraq. And so like that, that song is one of the few that I think is very, very directly, you know, it's easy to see the allegory there. Mm. Um, but so I guess I don't, I don't really see every single song as, as in the same way. And I don't really want the same experience for, for, for every single song. I think there's a, a wide variety of, uh, I don't know, em, em, emotional strategies. I don't know for, for, sure. for, for different people. I don't know if there's a better way to say that. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the allegorical element because I, I think on regular guy, I was having this moment of like, listening to it without knowing what the news story was in advance of being like, it just sounds like someone who's like thinking of himself as sort of like a populist hero in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, there's given the, you know, a poop, sorry, I hate to interrupt a populist hero. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. 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 Um, and like given the, you know, American politics of the last half a decade or so, it's hard not to like draw certain kind of, inferences from that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. um how much are you thinking about like uh allegory or broader implications beyond just the news story that you're writing about for a particular track yeah you know um sometimes it's it's pretty like 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 with cut and run it's pretty like it's pretty on the nose like you know i feel like it's it's right there in, in, in my head and sometimes we'll be writing it'll be like hey you know this actually seems a lot like it's commenting on this other thing and then we'll we'll, we'll kind of like oh that I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good point. And then we'll kind of start trying to bring a little bit more consciousness to that and, and, and kind of go down that road. Like, I think I mentioned before, like, you know, like the kind of dirty process of kind of like, just kind of trying a bunch of stuff. I feel like it's like that with, with, with subject matter also. I don't, I don't, unless, unless, unless we go into something with a super clear idea of what, what's exactly going to happen, which is a pretty rare thing. You know, usually it's kind of, we just kind of get our hands dirty and see where it takes us. And I find that, you know, we, that, that process is, Often takes us to places that we never could have. We never could have just kind of preformed, you know. Has writing this way changed the way that you take in news? Oh wow! Huh? I don't know. I mean, well, I guess to the extent that that I'm, I always feel like I'm kind of you know trolling for stories. Um, but you know, in that in that respect, I'm always I'm always looking for for a humorous angle to to, to stories and, and and it's it's harder you know it's caused me to say like wow there there's very little humor here like there's i i i guess from the purely selfish standpoint of wanting to find subject material for a song i'm very often listening to to to, to or reading you know news stories and being like could this be a song and we don't like to write things about really super grim things like people getting killed like we don't like, that's not funny to me, you know, like we don't like to take on that stuff. And so, you know, um, certain topics like, like the guy getting his penis cut off, it's like, like, can this be something that we can actually do a song about? Is this, is this something funny? And so, you know, or is this something that, you know, sympathetic or is this something where, where we can, you know, paint a picture or tell the story? And, you know, increasingly, there's just so much horrible, horrible news that it's just like, no, no, I can't make a story out of that. You know, I, I can't do anything with that. You know, outside of that, uh, I, 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 I can't say it has too much changed the way I take in news. I think most, mm -hmm. most news I take in, in you know, the, the way I always have, you know, it's, it's just with my, my hands over my, over my eyes. Just. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's also the other thing that has changed, which is like the the over the last eight years or so since like the last paper mice record, the degree of the which like social media and the internet has impacted the way that news is spread and consumed. Has that had a sort of impact? Like, does that make it easier or more difficult to find the kind of stories that you'd like to write about? Well, to be fair, uh, to be honest, I have been not entirely off of social media, but as much as possible off of social media for the past couple of years. Uh, it's, uh, to be to be brutally honest, um, my therapist recommended it. <laughs> I, I I have some struggles with anxiety, and um, you know she said like you should not be spending much time on Facebook. You should kind of try to distance yourself from that. And so you know it has been really helpful for me to kind of stay away from social media for my mental health. And so I I, you know, I can't comment in recent years too much on that. And you know in previous years um, before before I, I cut off from from that it was we got a lot of a lot of friends just kind of sending me stories on, on Facebook being like, you should write a song about this. You should write a song about this. And that was awesome because it was just like, I didn't ever have to, to look. I never did think it was just a constant stream of, of stories coming from friends. But um, I mean, it's also the, 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 the problem with a lot of, a lot of, especially in the past like 10 years, there's been a lot of kind of satirical news sites or come, popping up and like, uh, people coming up with, you know, these stories that sound amazing and sound like they'd be great songs and none of them are real, um, mm. which is a real annoying turn of events. But, um, you know, we filtered those out pretty, pretty effectively, I think. I mean this with all respect, but why has it taken so long for another Paper Mice record? Yeah, no, I don't take it the wrong way. Uh, th th this has been a, a very tumultuous eight years. Um, you know, pretty, pretty soon after uh, the Funny Papers, Adam decided uh well no me rephrase pretty pretty soon after the funny papers adam adam's wife got pregnant and so we had to take a, a good deal of time off uh after the birth of their son and it wasn't long after that that he he decided he was going to move to california mm -hmm. and so we spent a, a good deal of time um not as not a band we spent um it was less than a year but we spent a, a bit of time i think it was less than a year just kind of figuring you know what should we do like i i very much wanted to continue playing and john wasn't so sure and, you know, eventually we decided, yeah, we do want to start playing again. And that's when we found Taylor. So then it took us a deal of, a deal of time to, we started playing with Taylor, started teaching him the songs and started figuring out how we write together. Cause that, that process is, you know, is you gotta, it's hard to write in the way that we write with this kind of collective um, process, unless you really kind of trust and know the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we've known Taylor, we were, we were friends, but it wasn't like, we, it took us a while to figure out how we play together. And so we started writing music with Taylor and then um, Taylor's father passed away. Um, oh. And so we had to take a, a bit of a hiatus there. Then um, I had a kid, so we had to take a bit of a hiatus there. Then my father passed away, I take a bit of a hiatus there. So there's been like, you know, uh, if it, there's been a lot of major life events that have happened. I ended up, uh, I had a, I had to have a, a minor surgery for a kidney stone. I had, a, you know, I, uh, there was a lot of things that have happened to kind of keep this album from, from coming out. Not all of them bad. Like I said, you know, like I had a, my, my son was born, John got married, like, you know, like a lot of big important life events, but like I said, a lot of big important life events that, that just kind of strips this out. You know, it takes us a while to write songs as it is, but, eight years is a long time. And if you thought of us just writing songs for eight years, I mean, that's less than a song a year. That's not, that's not, 
that's not what it was, you know, the, 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 or no, that wouldn't be less than a song. It would be like, yeah, so 10 songs, eight years, sorry. It's not just that the process took a long time. It's that we weren't a band. We had all these major things happen. And, and you know, there were just month after month that we weren't a band, month after month that we couldn't play for, for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, seriously, we were in the studio kind of trying to put some finishing touches on this album when the country like went into lockdown and, we're, and we, hadn't, we hadn't yet recorded the string quartet. Mm, and so damn. that was another delay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, like I said, if it wasn't for the wonderful things like my, my, my son being born and John getting married, I would say this album was cursed and that like, let's get it out already because there's all these horrible things that have happened to us. Like the deaths in the family, the, you know, Taylor had a very bad injury a few weeks ago. Like there's been a lot of things that have happened, but it comes out tomorrow and it's, it's finally happening. So, <laughs> yeah. Does that, I imagine that feels good to have that so close to being out into the world. I, I can't explain it to you. It's just, it's, it feels wonderful. It's, you know, this, it's just this, we spent so, so long, you know, working on this and it's just like, you know, I'm actually, it felt really good on Monday when the album stream came out people could mm-hmm. actually hear the whole thing finally, you know, and like actually getting the records into people's hands. It's, it's it just feels amazing to finally, after all of these years to get this, to get this music out to people, you know? Yeah. You mentioned the string quartet. That's, uh, I think, one of the big selling points. That's my particular favorite track on the record. I think it's a gorgeous song, Stop to Finish, I I almost said. Uh, From start to finish, I think Trial by Fire is just like an incredible piece of music. Um, Thank you. And one of the things that I, 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 I liked that this record kind of feels like you're connecting the dots between like a math rock tradition and like a chamber pop tradition in some ways Mm -hmm. and like that there is this connection of extremely tightly controlled music that doesn't necessarily have to be aggressive or overly complicated in some way but i I don't know that was like such a like oh of course moment when that when the strings come in (laughs) like it's surprising but it also sort of feels like it's locking in a bunch of puzzle pieces for how i was thinking about (laughs) the record um when did you start conceptualizing bringing in all these other like quote-unquote non-rock instruments into the record yeah um this is i think uh, something that john and taylor have been kind of pushing for for a while they've been i've been you know i i was kind of the, the person who was like three instruments no reverb no effects like we're going to do only what what we can do live i don't want the album to sound anything you know i don't want it to sound different than we can what we can do live and i was you know, um, a bit of a jerk about that. This was just like how I wanted it to be. And I, I was, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It was to the guys, <laughs> you know, I was really rigid in that. And then when Taylor joined the band, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I feel like th- there was a lot of ways in which, in which I was kind of convinced to try other things. I kind of, you know, Taylor and John had all these ideas for kind of like branching out and doing other things, like adding background vocals, which we do on a couple of the tracks in the album. And, you know, we had been talking about it for a while and Taylor, you know, Taylor is Taylor recorded the album and produced and engineered everything. So, you know, he, you know, in terms of the actual production of the album and in terms of all of these ideas, I was finally like, you know what, it's not just my band. I'm not going to keep pushing this direction. Like let's try some of these ideas. Let's try some of what you're talking about. Um, And so when we started writing trial by fire uh, and we had the idea for that middle section, you know, we were like, let's try three part vocal harmony here. And so, you know, when we performed that song live, it was with three-part vocal harmony. And it was just like, um, it was, you know, it was like a, 
it was this thing that I've been fighting off for so long. And once we opened the floodgates, I was like, okay, let's, let's do, let's go all the way with it. Let's add, like, there's a piano hidden in there. There's the strings, there's a wind chime at one moment, you know? Um, like I, I felt, I felt like it was opening up this whole other, other element of the music that, that I wouldn't say had been repressed. It was just this thing that like, I didn't realize was in there. And now that, you know, the, the guys had pushed so hard to like open it up. I felt like this is like, I think our next album is going to have so much more of that stuff. I feel like, mm. you know, and also like, you know, the production of the album is so different than the other albums. Like Taylor has such beautiful ears and, you know, he like his, his ear for production and for sound and for all of these things is so wonderful and so finely tuned that, you know, uh, so many times I actually, I was just like, you know, Taylor take the wheel. Like, you know, like he had these ideas for the sounds of each of the different tracks and, and, I don't have an ear for that stuff at all. Like, I don't have an ear for audio. Like, I, 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 you know, I, it's just not something I feel like comfortable with. And so, like, it's it's wonderful to to to, to play music with people that you trust so entirely. With, with you know, with, that you can just be like, yeah, take take care of the sound, like make it sound how you want. And I I, I wish I wish I had uh, you know known him earlier, like you know had 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 his influence earlier to to kind of produce the albums because it's, you know, I mean, I love the, 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 the people who produced our, our previous albums, but like, this is just a, it's a whole other sonic world that I hadn't considered. I was, yeah, I was going to ask about the tone thing too, because it is such a, like a tightly, there's the palette seems very precise, you know, and what mm -hmm. you were describing of like, it needs to sound like it would, if we were actually playing it in the room, why, why does that appeal to you? Like what, what appeals to you about that particular way of recording a band? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm off that now, but mm -hmm. like the, the, the reason I was on that before was I, I, I just, I like, I mean, I, how would I put it? I've always had a distaste for artificial reverb. Okay. We'll start, we'll start from there. Sure. Okay. I, I and I, I don't like, you know, the, it's not so rigid, but you know, for my own music, I didn't like things to sound fake, to sound, mm -hmm. you know, not like they sound in real life. I like, this feeling of having something be exactly as it is in real life, as it is on recording so that there's no, like, I don't know, veil or, or some, you know, some, something changing the way that people hear it. So that when they see you live, they're not like, Oh, it doesn't sound like it does on the album. I just, I like that connection, that kind of, this is what we are. And this is what we're going to be, whether you hear us on the recording, whether you hear us live, it's just like, and it's, uh, I don't know. I have aesthetics of simplicity in a sense, you know, I like I like the idea of, of having a very simple lineup for a band, bass, drums, guitar, one vocal, no reverb, everything, like no effects, just and we'll try to do something interesting with that very limited set of things. You know? Mm -hmm. Um but that yeah, I think I think that's also a very closed minded way of thinking about things and I'm I'm happy that I'm off of it, you know, you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested about how you have balanced playing music versus teaching music and how those mm. two things interact in your life. Once you started teaching, do you feel like that changed the way that you thought and approached playing or writing music at all? Hmm. Yeah, you got good questions. These are really interesting questions. I don't know. I feel like I, I learn a lot. I know it's a cliche to say you learn from your students, but I, I really feel like I learn a lot from my students in, in, in a lot of different ways. Like, um, you know, first of all, like when I started teaching, I, I, I feel like I felt like I understood how people would, would, would take information. I felt like I understood how if I presented something to, to my students, how they would take that in. And the, the more experience I got, the more I realized how wrong I was that I, I really didn't. I wasn't able to anticipate the experience that people were going to have of something um, and that, you know, 
not that it's not possible to, 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 to predict anything, but that it's, that it's very complex to feel like, it's, a, it's very complex to try to predict the experiences of people because you, you really only know your own perspective and you can only imagine other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so as, a, as a, you know, someone creating music uh, and performing music, you try to think about how things are going to come off to an audience, how, how someone's going to experience a specific musical idea or whether the, you know, they're going to get bored of something or whether they're going to think you, an idea is annoying or what, you know, what, however you're trying to formulate your material. It's, it's kind of impossible to, to, to predict how people are going to, going to take that. And it's, you know, in, in my teaching, I, 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 I feel like the, the, the more experience I get, the older I, older I get with this stuff. I try less to try to predict pe- people's experiences than to try to take people's perspectives in and incorporate, um, like for instance, students' interests, right? Take their interests and incorporate that into my teaching. Try to, um, you know, try to, 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 to bring that to, you know, to find out about my students and then bring some of what they're interested into into the classroom. Now, I don't think as, a, as a someone writing music, I'm trying to bring other people's influences into the music. I think that's uh, kind of in, impossibility because you don't, I mean, there's so many people that are out there, you can't know how, how they're, what, they're, what those experiences are. Um, but I, I feel like the, the humility that I, that I learned about, you know, from, there's a humility that I think I've gained in teaching from realizing that, that I don't know as much as I, I think I do about how people are going to experience things that, that has informed, I don't even know how to put it. No, it's, I, I think I see where you're getting at. Like there, that sort of humility, I would imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, there's no way that can't inform the way that not, and maybe not how you write your music, but how you feel about how your music may be perceived by others. Would that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I guess so. Because it's, it, it's, it's, I think, I think you're probably closer to what I was trying to say. Because I feel like, you know, in terms of like, you know, as, as someone trying to write music, you can't try to in, imagine your audience, what your audience is going to like. I feel like it's, 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 it's a, the audience is so varied and, you know, you can only put out what, what you think, what you think is good. You can't necessarily try to write to your audience. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if anything, it, you know, I, I've gained more confidence in, in like, Let's do what it is that we think is going to work and trust that the people are, that, you know, that anyone who's listening, that is going, is going to take the right thing out of it and don't try to control so much what, how people are going to experience it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trust the audience in a sense. I'm also curious about how teaching music has maybe changed over the last decade since I took your class versus maybe what is taught or how it's taught today. I, I know you mm-hmm. said that you're not doing it as frequently, but I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on it because I, I know pretty much nothing about the state of music education anymore since I'm, I'm out of the loop. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. In a lot of ways, the, you know, it, it's hard for me to comment on the, the, the teaching world as a whole because mm-hmm. uh, I was out of it for so long. Uh, and kind of purposefully out of it for so long. And, you know, I, I, I came back in uh, into it with, I think, a very so different set of values that I left it with. Um, so for, like, I, I guess let me, let me speak to my personal experience and I can try to speak to the kind of broader experience, uh, you know, uh, to teaching world as a whole as much as I can. Because for me, while I, was, um, while I had stopped teaching, I had become a parent. Uh, and I'd also started reading a lot of books, not only about parenting, but also uh, about race and about feminism and just like reading a lot about kind of social justice um and you know all of these things together really changed the way that i thought about teaching Mm. you know the the you know just considering a music theory curriculum and considering the overall um just undeniable whiteness of it 
um, was really uh, something that really troubled me, and and that uh, I, I realized that 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 um, you know to to some extent I had I had been participating in, and and it wasn't until I started reading a lot about uh, a lot more that I realized that like oh I have a a duty as a teacher to kind of try to to break that to try to 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 make my teaching um, less uh, for, from from a less white racial frame uh, to, mm -hmm. to use a, a bit of jargon um, and so I, I've definitely been uh, over the past five years or so, or, or so in my in my thinking trying to conceive of ways to, to do that as a teacher now that I'm back teaching you know I, I found some some really great resources for doing that and have been trying to 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 make my teaching um, kind of break out of that. But also in these years, you know, like, like I mentioned in these years that I wasn't teaching, I was thinking a lot about just how people learn, um, you know, becoming a parent and reading a lot about parenting. I was thinking about how I was treated as a student and, and, and in what ways I felt supported and in what ways I felt like my, my teacher was, saw me as someone who should just be doing work and didn't mm -hmm. see me as a person and didn't really value me. I didn't value my, my, my feelings, didn't, you know, didn't value you know, the, the ways in which teachers kind of mistrust their students, you know, and, and, and you know, coming back to teaching, I, I feel a real, a real kind of necessity to, 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 to treat my students like people and to, 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 to treat them with respect and to, and to, and to, and to, to, to trust them. Um, and so it's, it's made my approach uh, a lot different than I feel like it was when, 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 when you and I knew each other. You know, I, I didn't accept late assignments before. I was, I was very harsh. I would grade very harshly, you know, um, and it was, I think it was, looking back, it feels very arrogant, you know, uh, to me. I feel, I feel like, I feel crappy about that. And I, I think, you know, now I, I you know, I, I, I try to, to approach things from a much more, a much more sympathetic perspective that, that like, you know, especially during the pandemic, especially teaching over Zoom, people are in a rough spot now. And we can't just keep, you know, I don't want to get ranty at you here. I'm sorry, this is not, you know, this is nothing to do with uh, you. But I, just, I feel like it's, it's, it's really, it's, it feels criminal to expect the same things that we would expect of students pre-pandemic, during the pandemic. I mean, people are in such different situations. We, we don't, like, there's no way of knowing if someone taking care of a sick, sick relative at home. Do they have access to internet? I mean, it's such a different landscape that we're in right now that I really feel like we, we need to, have a much more understanding come from a more, much more understanding perspective. I'm sorry if this was too much. No, no, no. I, here. This is, uh, this is all stuff that I've been curious about because for like various, I've, I also moved during the pandemic and one of my roommates in the first uh, apartment that I started the pandemic in uh, taught English uh, as a second language, as part of his, um, that was one of his jobs. And I was, I was thinking a lot about like teaching in during lockdown. And I was thinking about how absolutely difficult it would have been for me to like, if this had happened a decade ago and I had still been in music school, how tough it would have been to actually do what I, what I was doing at Columbia now in absolutely, like yeah. Zoom classes. And so I, I am actually like just genuinely curious about like functionally like how how can you teach music over Zoom? Like, is it even really? Does that work at all? Like, I'm just curious. I mean, yeah, it's 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 definitely harder. And I think you know, like I have a I'll use my iPad as a, like a whiteboard, and like like tech, you know the technical stuff I can we can get around, mm -hmm. right? And it's actually you know playing examples for the class is actually a little bit easier than it was before because I just got 
you know, I get my, my, my windows open. I can just, you know, play whatever for me from whatever window I have open on my computer. That stuff is not necessarily so hard, but it's, it's really hard to overstate the, the, the impact of not being in the same room as your students. You know, uh, like I'll, 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 I'll want to have people clap along with an example and we can't do it because of the latency mm-hmm. on the, on the internet. Like, right. right? I'll, I'll, I'll want people to, to, I want to do, do demonstrate something physically. Like, you know, I like to have people come up to the front of the room sometime to demonstrate. I can't do that. Right. There's all these things that, 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 that are just like barriers. And there's, and then there's the, the thing that, you know, makes it really hard, which is, you know, a lot of students, I, I tell my students, you know, we can have their cameras off during, during class. People can, on Zoom, they can have their cameras off. I don't prefer it, but I also realize that not everybody is in a situation where they feel comfortable being on camera, you know, it's, it, and, you know, I don't know people's situations. I don't know anything about where, where they're at. And so I tell them, like, look, if you can be at a ca- on, on, your, on the camera, it would be great. If you can't, for whatever reason, I don't, want any, I don't need to know your reason. I understand. And so, it, you know, the problem with that is that I end up with a class of 20 people and I have five people on camera and I have just 16 pictures of people's names. Again, I understand where they're coming from. I, I don't want to force them to be on, in a, you know, a situation where they feel uncomfortable, especially because I... You know, I have to record the classes so that people who are absent can, can get the material. But it becomes very hard to feel a connection with your class, to feel like you understand these people and that you know who they are, like 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 you do when you're in the classroom with somebody, mm-hmm. right? Like you have to look people in the eye. You have to you make you make a human connection with them. That that part of it is it feels really. I won't say it feels gone, but it, it feels like there's there's a definite disconnect, and it, it's definitely not there like it is in class. And it, you know, the idea of when when I get back to the school of actually seeing some of these people in person. It's going to feel so weird to, to see people who's I've only seen their names on the screen or some people I've only seen in a little box. I might be, you know, mm-hmm. that, that piece of the picture, that, that, that personal connection that you get from being in a room with someone is, is, is not to be undervalued. It's really important. Yeah. I think especially so with music, like I think this is the case with everything, but to your previous point, like these things are not all just, separate problems they're all connected problems like the inability to connect with people individually in a room together or as a group together uh, the ability to not be hearing things the same way and to not like you know because it's not like a material level the sound of like playing something off of all these different speakers all these different headphones versus everyone hearing it on in the same room in the same acoustic setting being able to clap along to something and to be able to perform essentially with each other along with a piece of music. Like to me, all, I feel like all of these are very much a linked issue of Absolutely. connection, you know? Yeah. Also, you know, like I, I, I have a piano, but it's not near my computer. Mm-hmm. I don't have, I, I don't have a laptop. I have a desktop computer. So like I have a tiny little keyboard that I can't actually play all the examples because it's only like two octaves. And then I have my guitar. So like, I, I can never, it's really hard for me to actually give them, like, I, you know, usually in class I can sit on the piano and I can play whatever I want on the piano. Here it's very difficult because like, I can play on this crappy keyboard that is, you know, a MIDI keyboard that keys don't always work right and it's balanced in my lap as opposed to just walking over to a piano and just playing something. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's so, it's, it's, it, it gives it a, a certain dinkiness that's really, is <laughs> just, you know, does not do uh, justice to, doesn't do justice to, to, to a, a college education. Let's say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I totally get that. Well, given that the, the record drops tomorrow on date of recording um, and I, it still seems like shows are probably a long ways off from happening in Chicago from last I heard. Uh, mm-hmm. 
New York, it seems like now outdoor shows are starting to be a thing. And like, I've already seen people booking tours and whatnot, which seems maybe a bit premature and, and but whatever, <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, do you have a sense of, does it, is it looking likely that like next semester would be when in-person stuff is going to be happening again? Like, do you have a sense of like the timeline or? For, for, for school or for, yeah. for, for shows? Well, I guess kind of both, you know? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. You know, I think I, I have a feeling next, you know, like uh, in the fall that they're probably going to do mostly in person, which I have mixed feelings about just because uh, my kid won't be able to get vaccinated until, I mean, I'm hoping by the end of the year, but probably early 2022. It's, and, you know, I don't feel, I'm still afraid of bringing something home. I don't know if that's possible, but I, that's a big concern, but mm-hmm. it's starting to look like most schools are going to be in person uh, in the fall. As for shows, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know when they're going to start happening. And I don't know when I'm going to feel comfortable. Uh, you know, I think there's, there's, I think there's a couple pieces to this puzzle. I don't know how much you want me to say about this. I, uh, you know, there's the us feeling comfortable, but then there's also the fact that like, you know, an indoor show, for example, has, you know, there's staff at, the, at that place and how comfortable is the staff going to be? And I don't want to necessarily put these people in a position where, where they're going to feel in danger. So there's, there's a, there's a real com- kind of complicated, you know, ethical, moral question uh, here uh, regarding that, that I, I have yet to figure out where, where is the right place to be on that, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, given those somewhat tricky and tenuous circumstances, what's, what's on the horizon for, for paper mice and for you? Um, I, I think for the, for the band right now, we're, the next big thing we're looking to do is start practicing again. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, I've been, I've been locked down really hard. So the, you know, I think the guys have felt pretty comfortable getting together. I haven't yet, but now that I'm vaccinated, I think we're going to hopefully be able to start practicing, but also now Taylor, because of Taylor's injury, we have to wait until he's able to, to, to practice again. So mm-hmm. we're hoping in the next, in the next month or two to start practicing again. And I think, you know, we'll just start, you know writing more material and whenever whenever shows come around again you know we'll, we'll hopefully start playing some and then we we're hoping we were hoping originally to start doing a little bit of touring um you know touring has not been something we've been really that capable of doing for a while because of the fact that two of us have kids um mm-hmm. and the, uh so it's been it's been very hard we're, we're trying to you know do a week or so to here here and there so hopefully when if if slash when touring becomes a possibility that's something that we can do for for me um you know, I've just been writing a bunch of music and, you know, I think uh, I'm having a, uh, I'll be having a performance, I think on June 24th. I gotta, I gotta get the date right. I think it's June 24th, uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Music Now series. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the Quince Ensemble is their, their, their guest, their guest artists there, and they're going to be performing a movement from a, uh, a song cycle that I've written for them about dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pieces, the movement is called The Pub. And it's about um, my friend and fellow composer, uh, Alex Temple, about one of her dreams, um, a very interesting dream. And so I actually got to go hear a rehearsal of, of their Quince's in town right now. I had to go down to the Symphony Center yesterday, which was my first day being fully vaccinated. So I got to go down to the Symphony Hall and hear the rehearsal and they are slaying. So it's, uh, I think it's going to be streamed on June 24th. I need to double check. So let me get back to you about that. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you'll definitely send any sort of promotional info my way and I'll happily plug it into the show notes for you for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I like, here's hoping if slash when you're able to tour and I please let me know when you're in New York, if you ever are, you know? 
Oh, that would be great. Yeah, it's uh, it feels like a, it feels such, such an impossibility, right? <laughs> it's hard to imagine, you know? Mm-hmm, I know. Yeah, it's, it, it feels like every step of it feels impossible until it happens, though. You know, that, that's kind yeah. of how I felt about it. Like, I, I keep thinking about like how impossible the way things are now felt last May, you know? That's a good point. That's a really good um, point. And so I'm just trying to like plow forward, you know, that's, it's, that's my only way through this is like, cause I, I had a rough April <laughs> last year. And so I'm just, just like, just emotionally, like I, I did not handle it well. Um, and yeah. on the other side of that, I was just like, I have to believe that things will continue in some way or another and to like focus on what is possible to continue and continue to push forward towards that. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on to the podcast and talking. It was so great catching up with thank, you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to see you. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. And thank you, Dave, for joining me. Also, thank you, uh, Justin Pearson, for helping to set up this interview. You can find Paper Mice's music at papermice.bandcamp.com. If you like this episode, please give it a good rating and review, or send it to a friend who you think would enjoy it. If you want to get in touch with me, shoot me an email at lamniformsband at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Until next time.